are some days after worship and singing that you feel like you just need to say, let's go home. Uh, it was one of those, one of those days. Really appreciate our group leading us in, in that worship. We are in Matthew 5, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to Matthew 5 with us. We uh, started a new series last week on the Sermon on the Mount. We introduced it with a simple question, what if Jesus meant every word he said? What if Jesus meant every word he said in the Sermon on the Mount? And I believe he did, but we asked that question because this is uh, really a sermon about how to live a countercultural life in a in a countercultural kingdom. Christ very early in his ministry is presenting this countercultural kingdom, a kingdom that's uh, diametrically opposed to the value set of most of those with whom we rub shoulders uh, every day of our life. And if Jesus meant every word that he said, the question will be, how does that effect and how does that change what we do every day? Because when we read these words in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor, the world says blessed are the rich. When it says blessed are the poor, the world says blessed are those who laugh or, or mourn, blessed are those who laugh. Blessed are those who weep, the world would say blessed are those um, who think a whole lot of themselves and go out and pick themselves up by their bootstraps and, and make their way through life. Blessed are those who hunger or thirst for righteousness. The world would say blessed are those who don't hunger and thirst because they have everything, or at least they, they think they do. Blessed are those who are merciful the world would say, blessed are those who take care of themselves and don't really worry about anyone else. And so if Jesus meant everything that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is just the introduction to what he's going to say later, he's going to say a number of times, you, you have heard it said one thing, and I'm telling you another thing, this is what it really meant. If he means all of that, how does it affect the way we live? Jesus preached this sermon to, to his disciples, not, not simply the, the 12 big D disciples, the 12 disciples he called uh, apostles, um, but to all disciples, and I believe to, to all disciples in, in all ages of history, even those sitting in a small room in Lehigh Acres, Florida. Because in Matthew 5, in verses 1 and 2, he says he went up to a mountain and he sat down with his uh, disciples, came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Luke 6 tells us that, uh, which is um, kind of the Reader's Digest version of, of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 6, it tells us something uh, very, very similar. It says he lifted up... Before he lifted up his disciples, uh, his eyes on his disciples, it says he came down to a level place. He came down on the mountain to a level place, and a great crowd of disciples and a multitude, a great multitude of people of all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. 
So a great multitude of disciples, those 12 that were his inner circle, but those who are following him, and then a crowd came around him. And, and whether or not these are the same events, uh, Jesus preached the same message to all disciples. That is, everyone needs to hear about this happiness, about this uh, blessedness that he's talking about in the Beatitudes. And the question is really, how do you find it? How do you find that blessedness? How do you find that, that true happiness in life? Because it is the opposite of what the world assumes. True happiness is found by entering this countercultural kingdom. This is, this is a call to the kingdom, and it's a, it is instructions of how to live in the kingdom. He's really saying this is how you get in, and this getting in, and this is how you live, and this is the only place that you find this happiness or this blessedness that Jesus is talking about. That there is no lasting happiness or blessedness outside of the kingdom. He's saying the same thing really that he said to uh, Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. You remember that story when uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And in John chapter 3, he says, there was a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler. Uh, he said, Rabbi, uh, we know you're a good teacher, come from God, for no one can do signs uh, like you do unless God shows him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. When I was a kid, uh, we grew up in Virginia, and we had a, an amusement park there called King's Dominion. Some of you may have heard of that. I don't know if they're in other places or not, but I always thought it was an interesting, an interesting uh, title for an amusement park, King's Dominion, because obviously if there is a king, he has a dominion, and if someone has a dominion, he's the, he's the king of that, and so... I think, you know, it's a little strange, but as I was thinking of this kingdom that, that Jesus is, is teaching about, I thought, you know, that really is the right name for this, because this is not a kingdom that we see, but this is a kingdom of the heart. This is saying that the king, King Jesus, has dominion over our lives, that we are submitting to his dominion living in his kingdom. But one day there will be a kingdom that we will see. And that, that will be the day that Jesus returns and, and establishes his kingdom on earth where righteousness dwells. And that is the kingdom that we long for. We spread the kingdom. The kingdom grows as, as others um, submit their will to God's will and to God's dominion in their lives, but we live for that kingdom, a kingdom where righteousness dwells. And so to the disciples, he writes, and uh, Matthew writes, Jesus preaches these words about the kingdom. They're really words about living a kingdom lifestyle. 
You can't do these things that he's going to talk about unless you are in the kingdom. For example, in, in chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. That is impossible for non-Christians. There are none who seek God, but this is a seeking of God for those in the kingdom. In chapter 6, verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, what you eat, drink, and wear, and all you need, all of these things will be added to you. That is impossible for a non-believer. So he's given his his disciples, information and instructions on how to live. This is not a collection of ethical teachings for the world, that if the world just lives by these ethical teachings, everything will be fine. There have been those, uh, I read that Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, that's only, you know, you say that name too quickly, you, you kind of put the first name into the last name. Uh, but he said, this Sermon on the Mount went right to his heart. And I'm thinking, no, it, it really didn't. Because only believers can live this countercultural lifestyle. It doesn't work in the normal world. So how we enter the kingdom and how we live in the kingdom, is this lifestyle possible? And Jesus would say, yes, it is possible if you are truly a disciple, if you are truly in the kingdom. Some have, some have relegated this to, to saying that there are two groups of, of believers. Uh, it began in the, the 13th century, actually, with um, Thomas Aquinas, who, who separated believers into a, a lay leader or, or a lay believer group and a clergy believer group, that the common folk, there's no way that the common folk can do these things. These must be for the priests. These must be for the clergy. These must be for the monks. These must be for those who just separate themselves and this is all that they think about. And that is such a wrong view of the Sermon on the Mount. There are not two groups of Christians in the Sermon on the Mount, a, a, a group that can do this and a group that cannot do this. There are two groups. There are two paths, a narrow path and a wide path. There are two gates, a narrow gate and a, and a wide gate. There are two groups. There are believers and unbelievers. There is, there is heaven and hell, and there are those going to heaven, and there are those going to hell, but there are not two groups of believers. What did Peter say? Remember when we were in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 9, that you are a royal priesthood. You are all priests. This is not something set aside for a special group of believers. This is for all of us. And in order for us to get this, and when we get into the, the body of, of the sermon and to really understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand how this, how this is put together. Chapter 5, verse 17, some say this is the, the, the key verse of the body. Do not think that, or 
think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That Christ came to show us what it means to fulfill every law um, that, that Moses had given. And, but then Christ goes on and says, you know, there are things that you have heard. You have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. I tell you, you should not hate because if you've hated, you have murdered. He gives a new definition to, uh, perhaps not a new, but maybe the correct definition. The definition that was intended even from the very beginning that the, that the Pharisees and others and we ourselves have gotten away from. So there's a structure here, and the Beatitudes are really the introduction of the sermon. All of the sermon from um, the end of the Beatitudes in verse 12 and, and 13, all of the rest of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is built on the foundation of these Beatitudes, of these blessings. And as we talked about last week, the first verse, poor in spirit, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they, they, uh, they shall, um, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the, the first and foundational beatitude of all of the rest of the beatitudes, and they're built on each other. And last, last week we looked at that, the poor in spirit, they're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Who are the poor in spirit? John Calvin said, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is the poor in spirit. And remember we said that that word poor, it was, it was not just a poor of, I'm struggling to pay my bills each month, but, but I do have enough to pay them at the very, it's not, I don't have anything left over, but I've got enough to pay them. It's not that poor. There are, it, is, it is the word that means abject poverty. When Lori and I were first married, we were, we were that poor of, um, you know, trying to make ends meet to get to, to the end of the week. But now I remember one day, actually, we ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, and uh, fortunately, we both liked it. I remember sitting in my car one day um, saying, we need a box of macaroni and cheese for supper. And I... I looked in my wallet, and I didn't have enough money for a box of macaroni and cheese. Now, I don't know if you've had these moments, and I can't explain these moments. But at that moment, I prayed, God, we, we need some macaroni and cheese. Uh, I need, I need uh, you know, just a few cents to buy macaroni and cheese. And, and I, just, I just gave that to God, and, and I was looking in the glove box, you know, looking under the, the floor mats, anywhere I could, and I opened up the, the little thing in the middle when you had bucket seats, and, and there was a quarter in there. And that was enough to buy with what I had, our box of macaroni and cheese. Now, you know, I'm not saying God put that in there after I prayed, but, but that was a teachable moment for me. That was something God used in my life that I remember to this day of just thanking him uh, for his provision. And you all have, have those stories, but that's not even what this is talking about. This is talking about you don't even have enough money to think about buying a box of macaroni and cheese, and you have nowhere to get it. And you are standing before God helpless. You have nothing to give in exchange for your soul. As a matter of fact, the best thing you have to give to God is a righteousness of filthy 
rags. We talked about that last week, that this is a, a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It's a, it's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's a, a sense of moral uncleanness, uh, uncleanness of, of personal unworthiness. It's, it's singing the hymn we sang last week, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Because God's salvation is a gift absolutely free, undeserved, received with humility, the humility of a child, and lived with that same humility for the entirety of our lives. Well, that brings us to today's second beatitude. The first two are so closely connected, that, that we're going to look at the second beatitude today and see the connection to the first. Um, and, and next week, perhaps, we'll go into a couple more. But, but I'm doing this because the beatitudes are they're like a, a, a chain. In fact, they have been called a golden chain. You know, you may have heard um, of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. They have been called the um, the golden chain of salvation. And in Romans 8, verse 29, this was, this was something that was, was said by a, a Puritan in the 1600s, that this is the golden chain of salvation. John Arrowsmith was, was his name. He gave these verses that, that name. But verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are the things that God has done in salvation. He foreknew those who are his. He foreknew, what does that mean? It means before the foundation of the world, he placed his affection on some so that they would receive the benefits of salvation. He placed his love on us so that we would receive the benefits of salvation. And those he foreknew, he predestined. His sovereign grace was given to those he foreknew to assure that that the love that he placed on them would result in the blessings of salvation. So he loved them, and in his sovereign grace, he, he predestined them. And those he predestined, he called that through the gospel and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the, we call it the effectual call, that in time, as we hear the word and the Spirit convicts us, we express that faith that is given to us because God has called us. Those he called, he justified. At that moment, when we confess by faith Christ, he declares us righteous. He covers us with the righteousness of Christ, and we are declared righteous. And he treats us that way for eternity. It's not just a, a momentary thing, but we are righteous for eternity. And those he justified, he glorified. There will be a future action of an eternal deliverance from sin. It's a chain. They're built on each other. If you have one, you have them all. 
if you don't have the first one, you don't have any of them. It is a chain. The Beatitudes have been called a golden chain. I'm not sure. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I'm not positive about that, that he may have been the first one who gave them that name. But each link of the Beatitudes is connected to the next. You don't get one without getting the rest of them. It's not like the list of spiritual gifts where uh, you may have one spiritual gift and someone else has another, but we don't have all of those listed in the, the list of spiritual gifts. It's, it's not that. This is you have to have the first one. The first one leads to the second, and if you have the first one, you, you have them all. And so when we think of it as a chain, as a, a golden chain of, of a countercultural kingdom, the second link of that chain is mourning. And in verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn, those who mourn are blessed because they are comforted. Happy are the unhappy. The world would say, uh, why are you so happy? And we would say, because I cry every day. Because I mourn every day. The world says, be as happy as you can. The world goes from, from one event to the next, from one, one high to the next, and says happiness is the goal of life. Mourning is total nonsense to the world. But Jesus promises blessedness to those who mourn. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to look at it in just similarly to the way we did last week at the three sections of, of this beatitude that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And then we're going to look at blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. And then we're going to look at blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So what does it mean, blessed? And we talked about this last week and we're only going to spend uh, just a moment in review on this, but this is important. And we get, a, we get the idea it's important because Jesus, in his sermon and in the Beatitudes, in the introduction to the rest of the sermon, he, he uses this word nine times. Nine times. Blessed connects the links of the chain, the chain of the kingdom. He begins with the first blessing that uh, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ends with the last spirit, those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These, these blessings are all connected for those who are in the kingdom. What does it mean, blessed? It's not having three great kids. Although I hope you do. It's not getting a 25% raise, although I hope you do. <laughs> it's not beating cancer. It's not building a dream home. Those are blessings. 
And those should be accepted with thanksgiving. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Because if he were, what about the families who are in the kingdom and their child is on drugs or alcohol? What about the family who's in the kingdom and, and the, the news comes back and it's not good news from the doctor? What about those families? Perhaps our idea of being blessed is a bit shallow. When Lori and I were first um, getting involved in missions, we, we worked for a couple years with a mission called um, Operation Mobilization, and for a very short time we traveled with the founder of that mission. His name was George Verwer, a uh, 1960s graduate of, of Moody Bible Institute, and, and built a mission that has, that has really trained thousands of missionaries. But he was a very dynamic speaker, and, and our job was to carry his bags and set up his table and sell his books and then pack up, and we got to hear him speak. But I heard him speak one time, and he was visiting with, and I don't remember uh, which contemporary Christian singer it was, but he was, he, was, he was visiting with this singer and his wife in their home, and they were showing him around, and showing him around his home, their home, and said, God has blessed us so much. He's given us this beautiful home, and they were showing him all of these things, and, and George Verwer just looked at them, and he said, I know a pastor in India who's been praying for two years for a bicycle so that he can minister to the churches in the villages that are far away from him. Perhaps our idea of blessing is a bit shallow. You know, if you look up blessed in an English dictionary, it'll simply say made holy, consecrated, endowed with favor from God. The Greek word that is used here simply means happy or, or fortunate or honored, um, being in an enviable position for receiving God's favor as an extension of his grace. That we are in an enviable position, that people should look at us and say, I don't know what it is, but I want what he's got. And it is a position of being in a, in a right relationship with God. And Jesus is talking about a, a, a position of spiritual blessing, not blessings of the world. Jesus is not talking about the short-term gifts that come from God. And every good gift comes down from the Father of light, and, and we receive those gifts with thanksgiving. But he's not talking about those. I believe he's talking about what Paul talked about in, in um, Ephesians chapter 1, when he talks about the blessings. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before him, the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Those are the blessings that Jesus is talking about. This is, this is true, deep down, inner happiness. It's not affected by, by our surroundings or, or anything that happens in our lives. It is the approval of God. It brings delight. It is, it is a life that is flourishing. 
It is a spiritual state of, of well-being, of, of deep down joy-filled contentment. That's what he's talking about. It is so countercultural that the world doesn't understand even what we're talking about. Those are the kind of people that he describes here. Those are the people, he says, if you're in the kingdom, you are, you are that. You are that kind of blessed. You have a deep down happiness because God has worked in your life. Then he says, are the, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, secondly. We said this second second. Um, Beatitudes connected to the first. So, so how is that? It follow, if it follows naturally after poor in spirit, what is he talking about when he says those who mourn? D.A. Carson calls, calls mourning the, the emotional counterpart of poverty in the spirit. If you stand abject in abject poverty before God, it leads to mourning. The world says, blessed are those who laugh. And if, if, if you are blessed, why do you mourn? And if you mourn, how can you be blessed? But Jesus says, the one who is in the kingdom, standing hopelessly before a holy God, that person mourns. Christ pronounces a blessing on those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn. Now, there is, a, there is a natural mourning, and mourning is, is simply, um, simply to experience deep, deep grief. There's a natural mourning. There's a mourning process that we go through. There are, there are many people in our area who are mourning now because of Hurricane Ian. They're mourning the loss of everything that they ever had. There is a mourning process that takes place. There may be some in this room who are retired and you're mourning because of the last six months the stock market has kind of plummeted. And there's a sense of loss and there's a sense of, of grief and a, a sense of, of mourning. Perhaps the greatest mourning that we know is the loss of a, of, of a loved one. When we have someone who, who goes before us and dies, there's a mourning process. And I think that process is really it's designed by God for us, for our good. It helps us to, to live in this life of, of grief. You know, they talk about seven stages of mourning, uh, disbelief that, um, you know, this, this couldn't have happened and, and denial. No, I'm doing okay. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not hurting. And then there's anger. And we, we see that in the Psalms where uh, the psalmist is angry at God and we get angry at God and we start bargaining, you know, God, if you just let this cancer go away, you know, I'll serve you forever. Uh, and then there's a, a guilt. And, and maybe it's a guilt uh, for the person who has passed away and we never got to say goodbye to them. And there's a, a guilt that we, that we carry with us that can lead into depression. And if we don't get through that depression to the stage of acceptance, we'll, our lives are never uh, back to any sort of, of normality. And I think that whole process is a, it is a gift of God, and, and that, can, that can become sin. If we get stuck in one of those stages, if we get stuck in guilt, or we get stuck in depression, that can become sin. But, but some have concluded that that's what Jesus is talking about here, that we all mourn, 
And at times, there's a, there, through time, there's a natural comfort that comes. And I would say that is not what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn. What if Jesus meant every word he says? What does it mean? This is a spiritual mourning. If there's a connection with poor in the spirit, the, the spiritual bankruptcy before God, these people mourn. Why? Why do they mourn? Because they're poor. They stand before God, and God has graciously allowed them to see their poverty. He's graciously allowed them to see their hopelessness and their lostness. And he's graciously allowed them to see their sin. And when we see God for who he is and, and we see ourselves and our sins, we mourn. X prayed it this morning. He prayed Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw God in all of his glory and he looked at himself and he said, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I have sinned. And he cried out to God <coughs> and he mourned. <clears throat> but there's got to be a sense of sin before we even want the remedy for sin. You know, we've had uh, a few folks over the years, and there are, there are folks in, in other churches, they come to the church, and they even join the church, and, and eventually they just fade away. They, they um, move on, or they deny the faith, and, and we say, why did that happen? And I think the, the reality is that they never really mourned their sin. There are a lot of people who acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross. But they never mourn. They never mourn their sin. Not like uh, the, the lady in Luke chapter 7, the sinful warm woman whose sins were forgiven. The Pharisees and invited Jesus, and she comes and she uh, stands behind him. And, and in chapter 7 of Luke, it says this. He was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house. The, the, this woman brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, and he and kissed uh, he kissed her head and and kissed it, uh, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And the Pharisee says, "Well, what happened? Why?" And he goes on to explain two debts, and there was a small debt and there was a large debt, and he said, "Who cared?" the most, or who loved the most, and who was grateful the most, and it was the one whose great debt was forgiven. And she mourned because she had a great debt and she had great sin. And we talked about the, the tax collector who went to the temple and he wouldn't even lift his, lift his eyes, but he beat his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know if you've ever seen the... Um, the mourning in the Middle East, but sometimes they cut themselves and beating their breasts. It's a, a sign of mourning. There was this deep, troubled soul. We've lost that mourning. When we see God for who He is, and we see ourselves for who we are, 
and we see and we understand our sinfulness, there will be mourning. Jesus is talking about a godly sorrow, a godly mourning. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, what we're talking about here in this morning is repentance. It is a morning to, re to repentance. And only those people who have, who have entered the kingdom understand that kind of repentance, of mourning. And it's only those people who enter the kingdom. In verse 5, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they, for they will be comforted. It's a, we talked about this last week. It's, it's an emphasis that they and they only will be comforted. There is no comfort for those who are outside of the kingdom. So poverty of spirit and mourning, those things never change. It's not simply getting in the kingdom, but it's how we live in the kingdom. And I believe the longer that you are a Christian, the more you feel that way. The longer you understand sin, the more you understand that sin held Christ on the cross. And the more we understand the weight of that sin. And this poverty of spirit leads to this godly mourning. This is a, this is a word, there, there are about nine words for grief in the New Testament. And this is the strongest of those words. It could be, if, if we're in the Middle East, we'd probably define it as loud wailing like we see on the news when there's, when there's something happening in the Middle East, there's this loud wailing. We don't have that, but, but we would describe this as a deep, lasting inner mourning, a deep sadness within ourselves. David understood that, didn't he? We had uh, Psalm 51, George read uh, for us this morning. David actually wrote two psalms. He was so... Um, so taken with the guilt of sin. And Psalm 32 is, is the other one. But in, in Psalm 51, he says this, he, and you heard this this morning, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. His sin was ever before me. He says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. It was always in his mind. He couldn't get it out of his mind. And then he goes into this this description of mourning. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, let the bones that ha you have broken rejoice. There was, a, there was a mourning. Hide my face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It's gone. The right spirit is not within me. Cast me not, not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore 
the joy to me. David understood mourning. But there's a final thing. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Those who mourn, are, are, they're not blessed because they mourn. Uh, mourning is not uh, always a fun thing. But they are blessed because they are comforted. And that comfort is forgiveness. You remember the day when you really expected and uh, that God would forgive you? That you were, you knew that you were part of the family regardless of, of who you are and because of the finished work of Christ? You knew that he accepted you fully in Christ? You didn't stop trying to please Christ, but you stopped trying to earn his love. That's comfort. That is the comfort of forgiveness. The weight is taken off of our shoulders. But this morning, it's not just something that we do at conversion. Blessed are those who mourn. It's present tense. It's not blessed are those who have mourned and don't need to mourn anymore, but it's blessed are those who mourn and continue that experience. That the mourning that leads to repentance is something that we do daily. And the things that we, we do that are sin and the things that we don't do that we should have done. We're so thankful for 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That was not written to unbelievers. That was written to the church. Paul is the greatest example that I think we have in Scripture of this in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, Paul is mourning. This is a kingdom uh, lifestyle. This is not Paul on, on one experience, but in, in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. The very things I hate, I do. And we think, well, that was, that was one time, you know, Paul was having a bad day, and after that he writes uh, chapter 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But if you read chapter 8, verse 23, it says, not only creation, not only creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. We mourn as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is not something that happens one time. This is, this is a constant keep short accounts with God. This is repentance in the Christian life. And there's got to be an emptying. There's got to be a mourning before there can be comfort, before there can be a filling. You have to, you have to be empty. This is a kingdom lifestyle. This is how the Beatitudes work. We know the comfort of God today because we mourn and His Spirit comforts us there will be a day when we will know it in full, and that is Revelation 21.4. Revelation 21.4, he says this, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our hope. So how do you become a mourner? Jesus invites us. He says, for those of you who are 
who are weary and heavy laden. For those of you who are mourning, come unto me. I, can, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. We do it by understanding our, our poverty be, before God. That we have sinned against a holy God. It's not like, you know, disciplining your children, taking away their phone for a couple weeks. And, and the question we need to ask is, are we sorry? Are we mourning because of our sin? Or are we mourning because we got caught? And if we're mourning because of our sin, that is a deep, deep mourning. And so we hate our sin. We keep short accounts with God. We trust God that we're not out of his reach. We're not so bad that he can never, he can never forgive us. But we don't trust ourselves either. We're not so good that we don't need him. If you're in the kingdom, we are mourners. We are becoming mourners. And one day, all of our mourning will be taken away. The question is, are you a mourner? Are you sensitive to your sin? Are you comforted by forgiveness? Are you growing in your sorrow? And is your sorrow becoming joy? That's the, that is the cycle of the Christian life. That those who mourn are blessed because they're comforted. You can respond by a couple ways. You can mourn like the Pharisees and just do what's expected. You can fix yourself. You can say, I'm going to do the religious things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do all those things. Or you can admit your sin. You can come to God for his mercy and for his grace. And you can be comforted. That word is simply means to call someone alongside for help. Call someone alongside for help, and we pray to God, and, and we call the Holy Spirit our comforter. And he comes alongside of us in his word, and the conviction that the word is true, and he helps us, and he forgives us, and he encourages us, he strengthens us, and he comforts us. I don't know if you know this, but Martin Luther's 95 thesis, the very first one is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You could put the word mourning there, to be one of mourning. Citizens of the kingdom begin, continue, and end their life with repentance. There was a pastor, probably never heard of him, I had not, Gorham Abbott, lived in the 1800s. He was an American pastor and author. You won't know anything else about this man except for this quote, and this is enough. He said, repentance is the tear of love falling from the eye of faith when it fixes on Christ crucified. We need to be repenters. We need to be mourners. And let the tear of love fall from our eyes as we fix our eyes on Christ crucified. Pray with me.